man face and you don't see him heart. Sometimes I just chat somewhere, you're chatting. You know. But you know, I'm not even too bad at them, man. We no kill students, so we tell a boy, say, just step out of the school soon. We no kill students, so we tell a boy, straight, and just no compound, we compound. Show me a cami pan and me yard and me place. I don't get we call home, say, if you live up in a glass house, you should have never, ever throw an house to one. Then lily life gone, just like the wind blow. Them one come this and palu and him crew away you expect. Gun try to do. We never come after war. No them one warring. Well since I war them one. Look at the fight. I want to go. We not go back. I stand up out of here next week. Same place, same time. After hours is right here. I will go over them time. You know what you know it's a musical vibe next week. It's all about our thing. You know what I'm saying? Because I read the thing on the blast, blast. So can tune in to get some tickets. No more I want to can't get a ticket no call. No money ticket. No, no. Come true. 514 Prison Radio Show, a part of CKUT's Off the Hour. Prison Radio has been on the air for more than 10 years. Prison Radio seeks to confront the invisibility of prisons and prisoner struggle by focusing on the roots of incarceration, policing, and criminalization, and by challenging our ideas about what are prisons and the people inside our jails. Prison Radio is dedicated to programming that is directly collaborative with people who are currently incarcerated. This is in the interest of forging stronger ties with incarcerated and non-incarcerated people, ensuring that prisoners have direct control over their representation and that our understanding of prisons be informed by those who live inside their walls. We invite anyone who is interested in collaborating on programming to contact us. Those who have been affected by the prison system in any way are encouraged to get involved. You can email news at cqt.ca or prison at cqt.ca or you can call us at 514-448-4041 extension 6788. You're listening to CQT Montreal Community Campus Radio located on 90.3 FM on the dial and www.cqt.ca online. Oh, 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 oh
You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. Today we'll be airing part of Rust Belt Abolition Radio's episode number 19, which featured an interview with Nick Estes about Native resistance in the carceral state. We'll also be airing part of an interview with former political prisoner Anne Hansen, whose newest book will also be featured at a book launch in Montreal later this month. On August 29th, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections announced a temporary statewide lockdown, claiming it was in order to deal with drugs coming into the prisons there. Although the lockdown was lifted several weeks later, what has followed since are many new restrictions on books and mail in Pennsylvania prisons. Books are no longer being allowed into prisons in Pennsylvania. The PA Department of Corrections claims it is going to address this issue by adding more books to its own libraries and allowing inmates to access e-books. There have also been new restrictions placed on mail being received by folks inside PA prisons. Mail will no longer be sent directly to inmates. Rather, it will be scanned and sent electronically by Florida-based company Smart Communications. Legal mail sent to inmates will be opened at the prisons in Pennsylvania and copied before given to folks inside. There's already been a huge amount of pushback against these new restrictions from folks inside Pennsylvania prisons as well as supporters on the outside, including volunteers from groups like Books Through Bars and Bookum, two of the groups who have been regularly sending books to folks inside prisons in Pennsylvania until the new anti-book restrictions came into effect a few weeks ago, as well as groups like the ACLU and the Abolitionist Law Center. Locking down the Constitution. It happened on the last Wednesday of August, 2018. Around 8.30 p.m., the PA system announced a lockdown of the prison, apparently in response to a recent spate of staff sicknesses thought to be related to drugs. Even though the suspected cases occurred in prisons in the western part of Pennsylvania, the entire state system, almost 30 prisons, went into immediate lockdown. Lockdown means no movement in the prison except for staff. That means all prisoners are locked in their cells for 24 hours a day. All visits were canceled. Mail delivery and outgoing mail was canceled. Several days into this process, guards distributed a three-page memo to prisoners announcing new rules allegedly designed to defeat drug smuggling among them. Prisons will no longer receive mail for all correspondence will be rerouted through an address in St. Petersburg, Florida. That office will scan and copy the mail and then send a digital copy back to Pennsylvania. Legal mail will be Xeroxed and a copy given to the prisoner named in the mail. For three months, no visitor can purchase food or photos for a prisoner and no books can be ordered by a prisoner. The DOC, it appears, is having a temper tantrum, and it is engaged in war against all contact with the public. This sounds like the DOC's equivalent of reefer madness. This is, more than anything else, Pennsylvania's DOC's engagement in drug politics. It's a war against the prisoners, yes but also a war against knowledge and ultimately the Constitution itself. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. 
The time is presently 5.08. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and online at ckut.ca. It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Join us for the Montreal launch of the Antifa Comic Book, a brand new graphic novel from the celebrated Indigenous artist Gord Hill. Friday, October 12th, 7 p.m. at CETA, 2515 Rue de Lille in Little Burgundy. The evening kicks off at a screening of the short film Bash the Fash by Submedia, followed by a presentation from Gord Hill. And then stick around after to hit the dance floor with some anti-fascist beats. This is a free event and childcare can be provided. CETA is wheelchair accessible. For more info, check out montreal-antifasciste.info. Love comic books, hate fascism. This is a CKUT co-presentation. Up next, we'll be hearing an edited version of an episode from Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. In this episode, Nick Estes talks about the anti-Indian origins of the carceral state within the U.S. settler colonial project and argues that indigenous liberation offers critical frameworks for understanding how to abolish the state. You're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. On today's show, co-producers A. Maria and Catalina Rios spoke with Nick Estes, founder of The Red Nation, an organization dedicated to the liberation of Native peoples from capitalism and colonialism. My name is Nick Estes. I am Kulichasha from the Lower Rural Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. And I helped co-found the Red Nation in 2014 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, along with a collective of radical indigenous feminists and non-indigenous organizers. We formed specifically around the issue of police violence and state violence against indigenous peoples. Right now, we have organizations in several different locations, primarily in the Southwest, So there's a chapter in the book, Policing the Planet, in which Christina Heatherton interviews you and other members of the Red Nation to discuss how the criminalization of Native people, particularly the poor and houseless, represents a colonial strategy of crisis management. Can you talk about the relentless state violence against Native people in urban settings and the roots of this violence? I think to contextualize the issue of criminalization of Indigenous peoples off-reservation, we have to think historically about the boundaries that were created between off-reservation and on-reservation spaces. Oftentimes, we think of Indigenous peoples in the U.S. and Canada, for example, as confined only to these designated um, homeland areas, quote-unquote, which are, um, in fact, reservations, which were um, intended to be open-air concentration camps. In the 1950s, the era of termination and relocation really set into motion a forced displacement of indigenous peoples off-reservation lands in an effort to privatize those lands and open them up further for white settlement. So oftentimes we think of settler colonialism as something that happened primarily in the 19th century. But in fact, as we can see with you know the criminalization of indigenous peoples off-reservation, that really took place in the 20th century as well as you know the 21st century as today, but what happened in the, in the 1950s and 1960s is you had over a quarter million of Native people who were sort of lured or displaced 
from reservation lands in an effort by the state to essentially liquidate its federal responsibilities and treaty rights to tribes. And so what happened is you had a lot of people moving to off-reservation spaces, primarily urban locations, such as Minneapolis, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, Cleveland, Denver, etc. With this, you know, influx off-reservation, you had sort of the increase of policing of indigenous people off-reservation. And this wasn't like a new thing. This wasn't like a new sort of tactic that was developed by the settler state, but it had been intensified in this particular period. So, for example, in 1968, in Minneapolis, the police department of Minneapolis would go around on the weekends and bust up what were called Indian bars in the city and make mass arrests of indigenous people, you know, out on the weekend and then imprison them for the weekend. And this, this effort to police, you know, this off-reservation presence in the city. And so in effect, you know, you had kind of two things that were happening. You had one that was the criminalization of indigenous peoples for quote unquote drinking. So you have the figure of the drunk Indian, which, you know, by definition, being drunk in public is not technically illegal, nor is being indigenous but nonetheless, indigenous peoples have historically been criminalized um, for being, quote unquote, the drunk Indian. And so in response to the mass criminalization of indigenous peoples in not just Minneapolis, but also in other places, you know, in Gallup, New Mexico, for example, or Rapid City, South Dakota, you had the formation of the Red Power Movement essentially to combat police violence. And most people don't realize that you know, Red Power formed initially as an anti-police violence movement, and they formed these community patrols, um, much in the same vein as the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, you know, founded in Oakland, California, to essentially provide community safety patrols for Native people uh, on the weekends who were being profiled and, and harassed by the police. Eventually, that expanded into things such as survival schools, providing like an alternative education model for Native students in public schools, because not only were Native students taken away from their communities, but they were also educated in non-Indigenous spaces, you know, which taught really distorted versions of American history. The Red Nation, when we were founded, was really founded in that sort of tradition of addressing off-reservation police violence. But this isn't, you know, when we think of state violence, we often think of the figure of like, you know, the cop. But what we not just we, the Red Nation, but historically the indigenous movement has addressed the figure of the settler as well as carrying out the will of the settler state to essentially eliminate indigenous peoples. And this happens in a um, practice called Indian rolling, where primarily young men go around on the weekends or at night and murder or harass or mutilate in native people who may be out on the street. For example, two young men shot and killed Ronnie Ross, a Navajo man in Albuquerque, New Mexico, thus continuing this longer pattern of upholding this notion of anti-Indian common sense, where the settler state doesn't always need to kill indigenous people when everyday settler citizens do that for them. And we can see this in places like what is currently called Canada, with murdered and missing indigenous women, the thousands of women who have been disappeared or murdered by everyday settlers. And we can see this in the two most recent court cases in Canada that ironically happened during the truth and reconciliation process of the murders of Colton Bushi, as well as Tina Fontaine, 
where, you know, white settler citizens were essentially exonerated by the state of any wrongdoing. So when we were talking about, you know, the criminalization of indigenous peoples, it's not just the state itself enacting this violence, it's how settler citizens uphold that sort of status quo, what we call anti-Indian common sense. This ranges from anything from just murdering people outright to essentially policing the city as like a quote-unquote non-Indigenous space to upholding certain binaries of authenticity between urban and, you know, reservation-based Indigenous people. So we were really pushing back on that because we do see this kind of policing of the normative boundaries of indigeneity as upholding binaries that aren't, you know, useful. For example, four out of five Native people in the United States don't live on reservation land or trust land. So the majority experience of Indigenous peoples is one of off-reservation experience. And so how do we confront what is the dominant experience of of Native people off-reservation And so that's really the core foundation of who we are as the Red Nation. Along those lines, you write that Indian killing has always been authorized through the law, as Native people are marked as deviant and lawless for transgressing settler dictates. Historically, how do you understand the project of U.S. settler colonialism and Indigenous resistance as they relate to the formation of the carceral state? So I think we have to go back to... I I use this example not because I, well, I I do agree with Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia was, you know, who recently passed away, thank God. He, you know, represented this tradition in the Supreme Court. He was a constitutional purist, right? He believed in the original intent of the Constitution. And as somebody who studies American history, I do believe that he was correct in that interpretation, that we have to go back to the original intent of the Founding Fathers, And we can look at, you know, the founding documents, such as the Declaration of Independence, primarily written by somebody like Thomas Jefferson, which essentially criminalizes domestic slave revolts and the resistant indigenous resistance. And then the codification of the armament of everyday settlers under the the Second Amendment, which was, you know, obviously it was the second, it was the second amendment, right? It was the second thing passed next to the First Amendment. And the Second Amendment was passed in the context of the Battle of Wabash, wherein the Shawnee Confederacy, alongside allied Miamis, essentially wiped out the Continental Army following the the so-called Revolutionary War of Independence. And so what happened is that the standing army of the so-called United States was like in shambles. It was almost non-existent. And so the, the Second Amendment was essentially passed to arm everyday settlers and to federally subsidize the armament of those settlers to essentially carry out Indian killing, to continue taking land. Because if we understand historically, as Roxanne Dunbar-Tease in her new book, Loaded, argues, the Second Amendment was created to facilitate the taking of indigenous land and territory because the Revolutionary War was not fought for, you know, as we're told, as a war of independence from Britain, but it was fought as a war to expand settlement west of the Allegheny and Appalachian Mountains and thus expand the institution of slavery. And so out of these well-regulated settler militias, you have the formation of the first forms of law enforcement on the frontier to essentially bring order to a savage land. And so we can see the foundations of the carceral system as we know it today 
as being literally codified in the founding documents of this nation. And unlike other so-called republics, capitalist republics, the U.S. Constitution has never been changed, right? It's one of the few documents that exist you know, in the modern world that hasn't changed since its inception or deviated from what Roxanne Dumbartis calls the cult of the covenant. So we can kind of see, see this ideological groundwork being built from the very inception of the United States onwards. And so if we think of modern police departments, but also the arming of everyday settler citizens, we can think of this society as from the get-go, a carceral society that was incarceration, we tend to think of as many in the black radical tradition have highlighted in the abolitionist framework um, as one that essentially imprisons bodies to steal time from people that are alive. But often missing from that framework is the understanding of the role of indigenous elimination to essentially clear the land so that this capitalist project, this settler project, can grow and can continue to expand. And so we have to see incarceration, mass incarceration, as essentially a sort of a logical outcome of the system. Because we don't, when we talk about carceral studies, most people don't consider the reservation system as one of the founding sort of like systems of control and containment. So, yeah, I mean, I think the idea of studying but also challenging the carceral system, we have to actually talk about settler colonialism as foundational to it. To jump to the recent present, water protectors face conspicuous and well-documented police violence for many months at Standing Rock. And only afterwards did the extent of close coordination between police and private security become clear. Tell us about the criminalization of overt Native descent and how genocide is not only a project of the state, but of capitalism itself. I think many were surprised, first of all, that Morton County was essentially acting as a security firm for a pipeline company. But I think it misses the fact that the state is literally the handmaiden or the foot soldier of capital. And in this case, the state and you know the emergency management assistance compact, which was used to bring in 96 different law enforcement agencies from around the country, really facilitated a new mode of indigenous expropriation. And EMAC, as it's known, was a law that was passed under Clinton to essentially aid states in times of natural disasters, such as floods, hurricanes, wildfires, etc., to solicit support from other states to deal with those catastrophes. It also allowed uh, has a provision that allowed for so-called community disorders, enemy attack, or insurrection, I think is the actual language of the thing. And so the Martin County Sheriff's Department, you know, with the backing of the state of North Dakota, essentially solicited the support of 96 different law enforcement jurisdictions, which also included federal jurisdictions such as Border Patrol, the FBI, federal marshals, etc., this was really kind of like the full-fledged security state on demand at the behest of this small little tiny sheriff's department. But I think we have to kind of take a step back and actually look at a year prior to this mass mobilization, the governor of Maryland declared a state of emergency in the during the Baltimore uprising in response to the police killing of Freddie Gray. And he evoked the same powers of EMAC in that situation so essentially you have what is natural disaster legislation relief being used to crush black uprising, but also to expropriate indigenous lands. And now combine that with the close coordination with a private security firm, which cut its teeth in Iraq and Afghanistan, running counterinsurgency campaigns against civilian populations in both countries. 
And you have sort of the making of this global sort of system of these security regimes. Everything, you know, like when we say that, oh, these struggles are different, oftentimes people try to like parse out differences and struggles to say the indigenous movement is unique, the black movement is unique, you know, the immigrants' rights movement is unique, and they're all disparate and they need their own autonomy. But what's interesting is that the security state actually sees all of these struggles as connected, right? And even the private security state or the private security firms as well. And if you read those FOIA emails, they're actually talking about the connections between policing, what are Black-led urban uprisings in Baltimore, in Ferguson, and elsewhere, in connection with border security, as well as the, the tactics of crowd control that are used by the IDF and policing Palestinian protests, all the way to you know the policing of indigenous protests in Canada against pipelines crossing through unceded territory. So the security state already sees all of these things as interconnected, right? So the criminalization of indigenous peoples, it's kind of has come full circle because counterinsurgency as a practice by the U.S. military and then taken up by private security firms was literally formed during the Indian Wars. At West Point, in the officers' training on international law, they begin with the Indian Wars as, as the first example of counterinsurgency tactics deployed by the U.S. Army. And then they continue on up into the wars, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq and now Syria. So the U.S. has cut its teeth on waging wars against civilian populations by waging total war campaigns against indigenous peoples first. And then, you know, in the 21st century, it's still waging those campaigns, not just on indigenous peoples in the so-called U.S., but also on people elsewhere throughout the world. And so we have to think of these things as interconnected. And the criminalization of water protectors in particular is just a continuation of, of an Indian war that literally never ends. Coming from the migrant rights movement, I often think, what can legality even mean in stolen land? Creating those connections between these movements is something I've been reflecting on. You know, we have people who work closely with DREAMers and DACA recipients in the New Mexican context, but also within, you know, the national context. And one of our main contentions is that this government, the settler government, has no right to determine who can and cannot come on these lands when it itself is an invading, occupying force. And I think if we understand the U.S. as an invading, occupying force that literally cannot define the parameters of legality because it in and of itself, according to indigenous customary laws, is itself an illegal invading, you know, force. It brings up this, you know, larger question about what does native liberation look like? And I think what we have tried to kind of put forward is something that is kind of outside of the formal channels of power in the sense that nonprofit and NGO organizing tends to organize toward power, to speak to power, whereas we've kind of drawn on a longer tradition of indigenous resistance that isn't just confined to the examples of North America, which I would just call like the Anglosphere or the first world, but ones that draw um, from a hemispheric as well as a transnational and international approach where we try to organize with the base versus trying to organize in so-called civil society and trying to constantly convince the colonial institutions that indigenous people are humans. 
because that's been a failed project thus far. Um, if they do want to recognize their humanity, like that's great, but that's not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to empower everyday indigenous peoples to take charge of their lives. And so when we think of liberation, it's like also a process of decolonization that includes non-indigenous people who may or may not be complicit in the system, but also themselves and, uh, disempowered by it. And so if we think of settler society, which creates minorities, out of indigenous peoples, like statistical minorities out of indigenous peoples, we have to understand that, you know, when we when we're talking about liberation, we're, you know, we're talking about forms of autonomy and self-determination, but we're also talking about a process that includes the vast majority of society that doesn't hold power in this current system. There's a lot to be said about that because I think oftentimes people get uncomfortable with this label of settler in settler colonialism, but it's not that like we made up this term, you know, and then it's like becomes this individual identity that people take on as their own, but it's like literally structured in the legal, political, cultural, and social systems of this particular colonial government, right? And so when we're talking about liberation or indigenous self-determination, that means that we're also advocating for the abolition of the systems that grant these particular privileges you know, that are always constructed against indigenous governance as well as indigenous territory or rights to territory. And I think some people get uncomfortable with that or they want to, you know, reduce it to something they call like identity politics, when in fact we're not talking about individual identities, we're actually talking about structures of power. Um, and identities tend to obscure, you know, the, the claim of an individual identity tends to obscure those structures of power. To come to a close... How can a better understanding of settler colonialism and its project of elimination shift how we think about abolition and carcerality in the so-called United States? And what are some concrete ways you'd like to see the movement to abolish the carceral state engage with an anti-colonial framework? That's a really good question. I think for us, because this is a settler society and its primary function and goal is to erase indigenous peoples, indigenous people always kind of become a tack on struggle. So it's like, how are, you know, indigenous peoples incarcerated too? Or how are they, you know, affected by police brutality too? And then it becomes this kind of like, you know, afterthought in this larger conversation, when I think organizers have argued for the, the last centuries that settler society's primary organizing principle is the elimination of indigenous peoples, first and foremost, to essentially secure access, uh, unrestricted access to, to the land. And oftentimes what, you know, for example, what black people in the U.S. face with the carceral system will be distinct because their mode of criminalization is different from the mode of criminalization of indigenous peoples. But nonetheless, they speak to each other um, across those differences, right? Because it's part of the same kind of project. Some concrete ways in which we have been advocating for you know, non-reformist reforms would be thinking about indigenous treaties as something that aren't just exclusive to indigenous peoples. For example, at Standing Rock, we invited people from all walks of life to essentially uphold treaty, treaty law and indigenous governance. That was an, an exclusive project for indigenous peoples. And I think there's a fear that indigenous, you know, liberation or, you know, sovereignty is somehow an exclusive project 
that categorically excludes other people and that if indigenous peoples were left in charge that they would do to settlers and settler society what was done to their ancestors, you know, genocided, removed from the land, displaced, incarcerated, etc. But I think every sort of iteration of an, a multinational indigenous struggle has proved otherwise, right? We didn't kick people off the land at Standing Rock or elsewhere. We invited them in to participate in this particular struggle and you know, for better or worse, there's, you know, I'm not saying that's like a perfect system, but I think when we think about implementing things such as treaties, we're also talking about the upholding of, if we want to get like kind of legal in this approach is that, you know, the first amendment has within its language that like treaties are the supreme law of the land. And that if people want to hold their government to account, they can say that, Hey, look, our government signed these treaties with these people. And it's the First Amendment, right? If people are so like constitutionally pure, how come they don't focus on the First Amendment and the first agreements that were ever made? The first diplomatic agreements that were ever made were with indigenous peoples. These agreements essentially guaranteed peaceful coexistence. You know, I'm saying these things, but I'm not like, I'm not saying that these are like the perfect modes of understanding what indigenous liberation is. I'm just talking about a baseline approach. But these treaties also guaranteed things, you know, not just access to territory, but things such as healthcare, such as employment, such as food and education. And, you know, on the left, those are things that we would call part of a, a living social wage. And so we can think of treaties as kind of a model, um, like a base framework for understanding how these other struggles connect with indigenous struggles, that treaty rights have to be at the forefront of this. They can't be an afterthought. Indigenous you know, liberation has to be at the forefront of this. It can't just always be an afterthought. And that it does speak to these other movements in ways that are re really generative and that deserve a more robust conversation versus always siphoning, or not siphoning, but siloing off um, movements as kind of disparate struggles that don't speak to each other. Because as we saw, not just on the ground of Standing Rock, but in places like Minneapolis, even in places like Albuquerque, where I've organized, the tendency is not to just have like only indigenous peoples. The tendency is always, how do these struggles speak across these differences? How are we accounting for different definitions of indigeneity, for example, and how do we not reproduce something in the first world, such as the Monroe Doctrine and how we organize in a hemispheric approach that the U.S.-based and Canadian-based indigenous struggles don't have a hegemony on the definitions of what constitutes indigeneity, and just because somebody crosses a border doesn't mean that person is either less indigenous or has, quote unquote, not from the community, but in fact deserves our support and solidarity. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. That was an interview with Nick Estes that originally aired on Rust Belt Abolition Radio. Estes is co-founder of the Red Nation, an anti-profit coalition dedicated to the liberation of native nations, lands, and peoples. To hear the entire episode or read the transcript, visit rustbeltradio.org. The time is currently 5.35 p.m., and you're listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. Up next, you'll be hearing part of an interview with the former political prisoner, Anne Hansen. This interview was done by the folks at From Embers. In the interview, Anne talks about her recently published memoir, as well as changing prison conditions in the now-closed prison for women, P4W, in Kingston, 
and Grand, Grand Valley Institution in Kitchener, The Importance of Relationships with Other Women in Prison, Legal and Political Strategy, Following Anne's Arrest, The Difficulties of Telling Stories About One's Life and Other People in It, and more. You are listening to From Embers, a weekly show on CFRC 101.9 FM about anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas and practice. We are broadcasting from the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples on land that has come to be called Kingston, Ontario, Canada because of the thievery and brutality of the Canadian state and its empire-loving parents. From Embers is about fires, some real and some metaphorical. Fires started generations ago and tended to over the years. Little sparks all across this territory that we hope will grow, spread, and engulf the thieving state called Canada and the capitalist system that has plagued this land since the fur trade. This week's episode of From Embers brings you a conversation with Anne Hansen, who served seven years of a life sentence in federal prisons. She's a prison abolition activist and author of Direct Action, Memoirs of an Urban Guerrilla. Anne recently published a book about her experiences in prison called Taking the Rap, Women Doing Time for Society's Crimes, and that was published by Between the Lines in Toronto. Taking the Rap goes back and forth between personal stories of Anne's experiences in women's prison in Canada and critical accounts of conditions and transformations in the Canadian prison system from the 1980s through to the 2000s. It especially highlights the repression faced by Native women in prison and a few different ways that the Correctional Services of Canada have tried to put some fancy new window dressings on the same old institution of colonization and control. I think Anne's commitment to telling true stories combined with her revolutionary perspective and deep understanding have created a powerful book and I highly recommend it. Thanks for talking to me. Oh, well, thanks for uh, for interviewing me. I'm honored. Thanks. Can you tell me a bit about why you decided to write the book in the first place? Hmm. I think, actually, to be honest, as, as soon as I went to, to prison, I was aware that I would... I don't know. I didn't have any vision of what kind of book, but I knew that I would would want to have a record of things because throughout my entire time in prison, even like those short suspensions, I would write like, you know, I would never write like about things that would be um, a security problem if the cards got a hold of it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I would write about things that that I thought were important to, to, to put down that I might forget or really interesting uh, stories or events. Now, a lot of stuff sort of disappeared, you know, like who knows, I, you know, I'd throw out papers or whatever. 
but I did keep a lot of uh, documents uh, or journals or whatever you want to call it because I knew that it was um, you know a unique experience and one that I would want to share with other people especially because of my history you know as a as a political activist I figured other people would end up going to jail and it would be valuable information, you know, Mm -hmm. for people. Um, I have always enjoyed reading books about prison, you know, or about just different, um, yeah, life experiences that I haven't had that could have, you know, mm -hmm. just to kind of get a heads up on what's going to happen. For sure, I think those stories are super valuable. And important to share. Do you, for people who might not be familiar with your story, um, do you want to quickly talk about how you got to prison? Sure. Yeah. So back in the eight in the early eighties, um, you know there was a large numbers of well, large, like relative about maybe a fewer than today, but there were anarchists and feminists and you know, indigenous activists all over Canada. And there was a group of us who independently at different ends of the country um, were, were, were thinking about escalating our political activism to more like urban guerrilla style stuff. It was more prevalent in those days. Like, you know, um, back in the 60s and 70s, the whole notion of urban guerrilla warfare was very common, mainly because it had come from the history of the national liberation movements in Africa and South America. And so sort of, you know, white people in North America and in Europe were engaging in it. And so we decided too that, I mean, we had, we were inspired by, by um, people in both Africa, South America, but, but in particular other white people who were like us, who, um, you know, weren't opposed to um, political activism on a legal level, but we felt that it was important that there also be a more militant um, political activism. So we started this uh, group. We spent a few years sort of um, called Direct Action. It was kind of a combination of anarchists and, well, anarchism, feminism. We'd been involved in prison abolition work, and we were very supportive of the Indigenous uh, struggles that were going on and uh, yeah we spent a couple of years kind of honing our analysis and so we could figure out what our most effective actions could be and learning skills you know urban like basically yeah okay urban guerrilla skills which would be more like your typical uh, criminal skills you know mm-hmm. and so we went on this campaign did some actions I won't get into everything and then we uh, got caught and convicted, and uh, we all ended up going to prison for a while. This was pre-9-11, so we all got out in a actually relatively short period of time compared to probably today. When I started reading your book, I realized it picked up right where the last one left off with court and sentencing, and, and I found that really interesting because I always find that interesting, the way that people navigate a bad situation together and make decisions. Um, Can you tell me a bit more about that process? Well, I think before we got arrested, we did spend quite a bit of time like really laughing hysterically about what would happen if we got busted going over the criminal code, you know, at night. And we just 
we were always uh, we had a pretty good sense of humor about things but we did have serious talks about if we ever got busted and of course we were very idealistic so we all envisioned you know like that we would refuse to participate um you know uh that we would declare ourselves political prisoners and plus there were these guys dino and gary butler who'd been busted in a shootout in vancouver before we even went underground and they were living in the same house as like myself you know you know their 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 spouses were because we lived i lived in this women's house so the indigenous women were there and their support group for the butlers and they were like um they were um, Dino Butler and uh, but the two Butlers. They um, were part of the American Indian Movement. Uh, I think Dino had been at Pine Ridge at that time. So they were really hardcore. You know, we really, and, P- and John Trudell was there a lot. So we were very inspired by them. And they had you know, they were not allowed to use their uh, spiritual uh, indigenous um, items in court, you know, so they refused to participate and, you know, they were shackled and dragged in or else left out of the courtroom entirely. But then when it came right down to it, it wasn't that we were scared. It was more, it was more that it was when, when the reality hits you in our particular case, there were so many factors. Like, for example, they didn't have hardly anything on Doug. Mm-hmm. And we were all being tried together. Mm-hmm. So what were we going to do? Take the super hardcore stance, refuse to participate, and then Doug would get 20 years? When meanwhile, you know, he'd probably only get five or six years for the amount of evidence they had on him, right? So you get into all these things where, you know, do you really... Like, if, for instance, if I got charged with killing, let's... I mean, okay, killing a cop, right? I would probably immediately become super, like, I'm not participating in this, because you know you're going to go down, right? And you know you're not going to get out for 25 years. There's no way that that's happening. And I'm not trying to downplay people's decisions to not participate, because the butlers, for example, weren't facing that series of charge. But when you have a lot of different people involved and you're all in the same, you know, you're all being tried together and everyone's kind of got a different perspective that I, I guess that's why we went through some of the trials we went through one trial because for instance Doug was not even involved in what in our well with the first trial was a Brinks conspiracy robbery charge which he was really not involved in but he was he was charged with us so we decided to go through with the trial mm-hmm. and yes he did get acquitted on that Anyways, so it, it was like I said in that book, it was kind of like a, I think I try I made like a little analogy to five people walking across like a, a you know, a canyon on a tightrope, you know, and so you somehow got to really orchestrate the way you walk and step to prevent, you know, one person from falling off and whatever. So we all had slightly different trial strategies. It wasn't, per- and then there's all these other people involved. Like we're in prison, and we have our friends that have like. There's a defense support group, and then just a support group, and people are sort of fighting about different things out there. Like that happens, mm-hmm. and there were people who wanted to to really uh, use this publicity of that we had we did that we wanted a fair trial, which is kind of bourgeois, really, based on you know assuming that there we do have civil rights. 
And in retrospect, I thought that was a re- that was really, you know, kind of not a good trial strategy. But at any rate, so it wasn't this pure, you know, idealistic trial strategy. But I, I think it was um, it was the best for all the different circumstances we had to deal with. I think that's what happens in general, and especially when you're, you know, you have these ideals, and when you when you actually are in the real situation, it's always way more messy than what you dreamed of to begin with, right? That leads me to thinking about your description of your political identity in prison, and I think I remember you describing a few times in the book that you had sort of lost your political identity. Do you think that's true, or would you...? Well, I wouldn't say I lost it ever, but um, I think what would happen like he you know you get isolated from the outside political community and even if the, I always had a lot of visitors but even then like my real daily life was in the prison that's what was actually having the most impact on my every on my identity and I never lost my political identity but what what happens is there weren't that many people who were interested in like you know organizing like the sort of resistance in prison that you sort of would normally, like that you might envision, you know? I mean, there was resistance, but it was more informal. And uh, it just, I don't know. I don't really know why. I mean, I wrote letters to people and we did do certain, like, you know, tried to get public interest in certain things, like people being in segregation for too long. But I mean, even Gail Horry, when she went on her hunger strike, uh, complained when she wanted to be transferred about how hard she had tried. And she was our inmate chairperson, was really, you know, spent a lot of time trying to get outside community support of mm-hmm. to support, like, getting people out of segregation who were in there for years. But it was never, it was very uh, discouraging. So, I don't know. I, th- I think, I, I mean, when I look back on it, I probably could have done more in terms of trying to be organized the other women. But... You're really not... The women in prison are just like you would... They're very strong people as a rule, you know? Like, probably stronger than most because of all the things they've been through. So the notion of going in there and organizing the women, you know, like kind of influencing them and like this sort of vision that I'm in some way superior to them so I'm going to go in there and organize them is a false one, really, you know? Like... The women in there are very, very acute, very, very sensitive to stuff like that, too. And they would just go, what the fuck? What are you, trying to be a blowhard? Like, there'd be stuff like that would come out of people's lips. I tried to portray some of the things, like, when me and Julie got into Ocala, we were in, on, on 10 out of 10, like, political activism, right? We were on the top level of, that's what we're going to do. And when we did this stupid hot dog, you know, we kicked over this hot, our lunch tray because they dragged one of the women off to transfer to P4W and I'll never forget how the women the women in there just thought it was ludicrous and it and in a way it was we were like destroying our own lunch but they were like I mean they're a little cynical too right sure. like what do you think they're gonna do bring her back just because you know like and you and you so these are not people who are just sitting there waiting to be liberated like there is a yeah. bit of a, a false yeah. image I think that is something I've been sort of becoming more and more aware of. And I'm not talking about 
like the anarchist community actually I'm thinking more about a lot of them there is a danger of people who mean well to have this image of people in prison needing help like they're victims right um, and, 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 and so that has a connotation of defenselessness weakness and the person who's going to help them is obviously more competent, has more power, knows what to do. You know, it's like the victim is this poor, helpless thing. And the person who's going to help them is more intelligent, organized. And perhaps that's true in, 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 in the cases of, like, people having perhaps more education, white privileged people, right? But my experience with the women in prison was there's many different kinds of people in there but there's a hell of a lot of very strong-minded women who are sort of hyper aware like spidey senses for people who are going to try to manipulate them use them tell them what to do because they experience that all the time with the cops social workers so many women in prison have spent from ju- have been in juvenile detention centers foster homes they've been you know indoctrinated with authoritarian figures so they are the most sensitive people to having people tell them what to do and and I did find that almost intuitively you know I sensed that as time went on it's not that I wouldn't want to be with a group of women in prison who organized a constant series of acts of resistance but in just the experience I had was that the women did resist but It wasn't always that simple either, you know? That was the first part of an interview with former political prisoner Anne Hansen. We're planning to play the rest of this interview on a future episode of the Prison Radio Show. In the meantime, if you have internet access, you can check out the full interview at frommembers.libsyn.com. A launch for Anne Hansen's newly released memoir will be taking place next week in Montreal. Here are the details. It's taking place at Frigo Val, which is located at 1440 Rue Mackay, and the closest metro is Guy Concordia. It's happening next Friday, October 19th at 7 p.m. And the announcement for the event reads as follows. Anne Hansen has spent over 30 years in prison and on parole as a consequence of her participation in a radical anarchist group that carried out a series of bombings against... Canadian government and corporate targets in the early 1980s, when Anne was arrested along with four other members of what would be known as the Vancouver Five, her longtime commitment to prison abolition suddenly became much more personal. The bonds and experiences that she would share with other imprisoned women in the years to come only strengthened her resolve. Come here, Anne, talk about Taking the Rap, her new book that was released this summer from Between the Lines Press. Copies of the book will be available for sale at a discounted price at the event, along with other titles distributed by Chris Blavidev. This event is organized with the support of the Certain Days Calendar Collective. The 2019 Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar will be available at the launch as well. Uh, the, the Frigo Vert is wheelchair accessible, including the bathrooms, and the Frigo has a scent-free policy. If you have additional questions about accessibility or anything else, you can email info at kersplebedeb, that's K-E-R-S-P-L-E-B-E-D-E-B.com. And if you, uh, if you want to request childcare, you can also contact that same email address. The event will take place in English with whisper translation towards French. Snacks will be provided and the event is free of charge. So again, that's next Friday, October 19th at 7 p.m., 1440 Rue Mackay.
And next up, we have an urgent uh, news item that I would like to share with you. Immigration detainees launch hunger strike in response to the CBSA's alternatives to detention. So this is from Toronto, October 11th, 2018. A group of immigration detainees in Ontario have gone on hunger strike, protesting a lack of communication from Canada Border Services Agency over a recently released policy framework. 15 men at Lindsay's Central East Correctional Center are demanding a meeting with the CBSA to discuss the National Immigration Detention Framework, published in July of this year. The policy seeks to create a better, fairer immigration detention system that supports the humane and dignified treatment of individuals while protecting public safety. But inmates facing indefinite detention across Canada have been left in the dark about what the new framework means for them. We echo the detainees' dem demands calling on Minister Ralph Goodale to send a senior officer or director to Lindsay to meet with them to explain the reality of these alternatives and answer their questions, says no one is illegal representative Maya Menendez. Immigration consultant McDonald Scott received a call from one of the striking detainees on Thursday confirming that everyone is still on hunger strike and that one person had been taken to the hospital. Reports today also suggest that organizers have been placed in segregation in attempt to break the strike. While many see electronic ankle bracelets and voice reporting, as positive steps in the right direction, the truth is the best alternative to detention is to release people back into their community where they can reintegrate without intrusive monitoring, says Scott. Scott's client, Ibrahim Touré, was released last month from the Toronto Immigration Holding Center after spending the last six years of his life in immigration detention. Canada's detention regime has been repeatedly criticized by the United Nations and denounced by immigrant families and advocates. That's from Scott. Canada is one of the few countries in the world without a limit on detentions. Since 2000, at least 17 people have died in immigration detention. No one is illegal has called on Canada to release all detainees and grant status to all immigrants upon arrival in Canada. The time is 5.58 p.m. and you have been listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable and www.ckut.ca. You can check out past episodes of The Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next Prison Radio Show will air on Friday, October 26th at 11 a.m. If you have any questions on anything that you've heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved in the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you're in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. You can feel free to write us at The Prison Radio Show, or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, postal code H3A2B3. Thanks for tuning into the Prison Radio Show. Stay tuned to CKUT 90.3 FM. There, 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 is, there is this thing. Do you realize what is... What is, what is what there is this thing. Do you realize... Consciousness is affected. There, 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 is, this, there is this thing. On... There is this thing going on. Do you realize our consciousness?
businesses affected. There is this thing going on. What is called the news brought to you live. live.